This is the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames. Brought to you by Special Needs Family Resources, LLC. For the next hour, we'll be discussing the particular challenges and real-life solutions for families with special needs. If you found us, please know that you are not alone. To find out more, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, it's your host, Julie Ames, on AM860, The Answer. Welcome to the Special Needs Family Hour with your host, Julie Ames, on AM860, The Answer. Our show will always begin with a few minutes of inspiration. Our goal is to help and inspire those parents and caregivers who are caring for special people. Well, this week has been a great week as far as being in Holland. The girls have been going to school every day, and that's how I define a good week in Holland, when the girls get up and they go to school. However, this Monday, it was difficult getting Maria to go to school. Um, Lots of times she'll wake up and she'll say she doesn't feel well, that she's sick, and of course she has allergies and asthma right now. But I've tried to tell her that we need to speak positively. In other words, don't say you don't feel well because in her case, her anxiety kicks in and then she actually does start feeling even worse. So we try and get her to talk positively. But on the same note, we also explain that in the morning when I don't feel well, I go to work, my husband goes to work, we do what we have to do. So, but Monday morning, what I did to help incentivize her is I kidnapped her four favorite dolls, um, Peter Pan, Lotso of Toy Story, her cheerleading target doll, and Optimus Prime, the Transformer. So I kidnapped them all. Of course, she started crying and very upset, asked me to give them back and that she wasn't going to school unless she got them back. And I explained that they were in the car waiting for her. So she came out, she got in the car, and I mean, it, it didn't happen that simply. But we did get her in the car, took her to school, and I told her that I would have them all sitting in the back seat when I picked her up and I mentioned that I, I mentioned to one of the ladies teachers at the door that quietly I said you know I really don't think she feels great so just call me if there's a problem and she had a good day she wasn't 100% but she had a good day and obviously she wasn't contagious or anything like that it's just you know we're not, we're not 100% all the time today I want to share with you a poem that was published in Dear Abby actually it's a republication at a fan's request on May 28, 2006, that was when my children were 10, 9, and 5. My husband actually typed this poem up and put it on my mirror in the bathroom so I would see it every day. The poem was actually written 59 years ago by Edna Massimilia of Hatboro, Pennsylvania, the widow of a pastor when their daughter, a child with Down syndrome, was born. She is now with the Lord. It was time again for another birth, said the angels to the Lord above. The special child will need much love. Her progress may be very slow, accomplishment she may not show, and she'll require extra care from the folks she meets down there. She may not run or laugh or play. Her thoughts may seem quite far away. So many times she will be labeled different, helpless, and disabled. So let's be careful where she's sent. We want her life to be content. Please, Lord, find the parents who will do a special job for you. They will not realize right away the leading role they are asked to play. But with this child sent from above comes stronger faith and richer love, and soon they'll know the privilege given in caring for their gift from heaven. Their precious charge, so meek and mild, is heaven's very special child. So please join me on the other side as I go into the second part of my personal story. Are you struggling with a special needs loved one in your life? Remember, you are not alone. 
Find out more at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Our program will continue in just a moment. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Thank you for tuning in to the Special Needs Family Hour with me, Julie Ames, on AM860, The Answer. For our family, we ran into a crisis January 2007, and that crisis was to medicate or not to medicate. And the way it came about is Maria was having a very, very difficult time during this time period. We would go to Mass with Maria, and we were constantly having to leave early. She just would get upset and seemed as if she couldn't control it. And it got to the point where we would have her milkshake ready for her. Remember I told you she ate, she would only eat soft foods. Um, we would have her milkshake. We would have food ready for her. And at this one particular mass in January, we had our shakes out in the car and we had play clothes because after mass, we were going to let her change in the car. The three girls were going to change and we were going to go play on the tunnels at McDonald's. Well, during this mass, Maria needed to leave. Um, Maria's OCD, and um, by OCD, during this time period of Maria's life, if you had your sleeves rolled up, she would pull them down. And I actually met in mass another woman who said my child was fine, that her son was the opposite. The sleeves had to be pushed up. <laughs> so it's amazing the people you meet when you go to church. But needless to say, Maria had to leave church. She could no longer contain herself. So my husband took her out to the car. When I got to the car, even with having a shake and knowing that she was headed to McDonald's, she could not get her act together. She was crying and was in pain. We got home and I looked at Maria because she could, we couldn't go to McDonald's. She just wasn't up to it. I looked at her, and she was crying, and she says, Mommy, I'm trying so hard. And I looked, and I cried. I said, I know. And I cried. And I said, well, why don't you go to bed? I tucked her in, and then I went to bed for about three hours because I realized that we were in a situation where she needed help. I took a movie of her. And my husband and I always said we would never, ever medicate, that the children need to learn who they are and to deal with who they are. So I took a video to my pediatrician and Maria. We made a special, we made a sick appointment to see the pediatrician. My husband took time off from work and we saw him. And he says, well, look, you have the genetic anomaly. And so it just may be that she needs help. So we went and we saw a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist um, prescribed citrulline. Well, it worked okay for a little while, but by about three in about three months, Maria had become highly agitated, and um, her teacher called me, and she said, "Miss Ames, I need you to come and get Maria. She's picking her lips. 
Well, when I came to get Maria, her lips were all bloody. Maria was crying. The teacher was crying. I was crying. And I took Maria home. <laughs> I was also, I also had, actually, I had interviews lined up that day. Um, it was just a rough day. But I took Maria home. I remember her teacher calling me and saying, Miss Ames, I didn't mean to make you cry. And I said, you know what? I'm okay. I'm just having to readjust. This is just something new, and I'm having to readjust to all of this. But I'm fine. Because we had reached a new um, a new crisis, and it was an emotional crisis. And we realized, in talking to the psychiatrist, that maybe we needed to switch from citrulline to Lexapro. And we kept Lex- Maria on Lexapro from about 2007, probably for about three or four years. And then it reached a point where it was no longer helping her. And we got her completely off everything. But during that time period, it did help her. She was diagnosed OCD. Um, It was one of those things that if you picked up the TV control, she had to get it out of your hand because she had to line it up on the table just right. Now, I know OCD is the popular... (laughs) You know, everyone wants to have OCD nowadays. Her room is completely organized. Every doll is organized. Her clothes are organized. Her her underwear, her socks, everything is folded. So there are some pluses with all of this. Um, the Lexapro, finally, we reached a point where she just, um, it wasn't working anymore. And she's much better off now. We're off the Lexapro. Now, however, we started Lexapro with Christina. Because of Christina's hyperventilation and they have the same genetic anomaly, we thought, well, it's helping Maria so much, maybe it would help Christina. Well, Christina started taking Lexapro, and um, the neurologist says Lexapro didn't cause her to have seizures. And I, I never even considered that possibility. But anyway, Christina overdid it one Sunday. She was um, swimming back and forth in the pool. The next morning, it was a Sunday morning. Um, not a Sunday morning. It was Monday morning, I believe. Christine is usually up about 5.30, 6 o'clock. My husband and I are sitting down eating breakfast, and there's no Christina. We can't find She's not anywhere. I go to her room, and I see her laying on the floor by the table in her room. And she seems to be all wet. And I yell for Jeff. Jeff comes, and he gets her, and she's all hot. And he takes her, and he, he takes her to the bathtub to put to put um, water on her to try and cool her off. Meanwhile, I call 911, and they come. They come in the house, and it's amazing, you know, on their black outfits and the stretcher, and they're completely, my living room is full, and they they get Christina. They And the first thing they told me when I called, when I was on 911, they said to uh, get her out of the water, and um, they get Christina, and then I head to the hospital with them. And it was different. My it's one of those things where I had been on that road, Lithia Pinecrest, headed to Brandon Hospital. I've been on that road hundreds of times. But when you're riding in the front of an ambulance with your child in the back, everything looks different. Well, Christina kept having more seizures, and, and then we ended up, her neurologist practiced at St. Joseph's, so she ended up at St. Joseph's. But what I didn't realize until after this whole situation is my husband said, 
when he was holding her, because see, when he was holding her, and I had to hold her too when we were waiting for nine one, the ambulance to come, she was bouncing from left to from right to left. She she had a focal seizure. We didn't know what it was at the time, but she was bouncing the whole time. She was trim trimming back and forth, and she wasn't there. And he said that he thought that he was that we were going to be planning her funeral. And I never thought about that. I mean. During that crisis situation, you're not thinking, oh, my kids, my kid could die. Well, we spent three days at St. Joseph's, and all we could come up with is that she seemed to have um, a sinus condition, and maybe that help caused it. But they gave her antibiotics, and when I took her home after three days, um, she had seizures nonstop. We were, and the reason why we kept having seizures is because she had diarrhea from the antibiotics. So the seizure medicine that was supposed to prevent it wasn't preventing it. And I was going through with my diastat, the seizure medicine. It's um, a suppository that you use with seizures to stop them. I went through my prescription and that was a whole ordeal. I write about it in my book about how to fill your prescriptions and get them right. But um, those were the seizure medicine was about $800 a unit. It was um, it was amazing, and it was an amazing time. And Jeff and I didn't go anywhere for probably two months because we were there with Christina and her seizures. So our whole life changed with that. Um, at this point, she's doing much better. We've She's now, that was, well, 2007, we're, what, 2015, she hardly has seizures. She does sometimes. She will have a little seizure, but we haven't been to the hospital in about five years. January, so that's been a blessing. And she got real sick a year or two later, so we took her off all medicine, and we took her off the seizure medication. And I realized some medicines, there's no way to prove that they cause or don't cause, but they lower your threshold for things. So with all her activity, it probably didn't help. But I got her off all medications that the medicine that she needs to keep from having seizures. It's a special needs family hour. I'm Julie Ames. We will be right back. To find out more or to contact Julie Ames, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour. I'm Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. I am here with Alex J. Molina, a Family Resource Specialist for USF Bay Area Early Steps. Hi, Alex. (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. How would you explain Early Steps to our listeners? Early Steps is a birth to 36-month early intervention program for children who are at risk or have developmental delays. We're a very unique program because what we do is we coach our caregivers, whether they're the parents or the caregivers of the child, and we go into the natural environment. That could be the daycare setting or the home, and we teach them the techniques. We do work with the children but we do also focus a lot of our attention on the caregivers and teaching them the techniques. Well, wow, now how did you become familiar with early steps? My daughter was actually diagnosed at four weeks with a sensorineural bilateral hearing loss. Wow. 
because of that diagnosis, we were automatically referred into the program. Um, at that point in time, we were living down in Bradenton, Florida, and there are 15 different early steps programs throughout the state of Florida, and we got an automatic referral, and her early steps uh, coordinator called me when she was about three months. Wow. So at that process, what happened after that phone call? We initially got a call from a service coordinator who went and did a BDI, a Battelle Development Inventory. And it's an evaluation that takes place to look over the five domains of development. Um, Because she was diagnosed with a hearing loss, that was our main concern. And at that point in time, we started therapies for the hearing loss. We chose listening and spoken language for her and were pursuing cochlear implants at the time. So how would you describe the domains for our audience? There are five different developmental domains that we look at. Adaptive self-help, cognition, physical, which is gross motor or fine motor, communication, and social-emotional. We have a group of evaluators that look at the child and talk to the parents, and they do these evaluations, and that qualifies for services with our program. All of our services with our program are free of charge to our caregivers. Wow. Now... Like for your child, what is some of the things that they taught you to do that you were able to use at home? Um, we actually had three different types of therapies at one point. Auditory verbal therapy, which is learning how to listen and talk. When she first had her hearing aids on, it was all about learning how to listen with the hearing aids. There were different things that they taught us, such as um, look, um, listen, stop and listen when you hear a sound, um, focus in on the sound. Um, when she got a little bit older, when she had the cochlear implants and was actually learning how to speak with the cochlear implants. And we, um, there's just like different things of holding something up like to your face and covering your mouth and having her hear what it is and then having the vocalization. We also had a teacher of the deaf that came in through the Hillsborough County Public School Systems, um, which actually taught specifically they're certified to teach um, deaf children. And then we also did a developmental play group where she learned how to interact with other children and did a modeling behavior with other children. Wow. And all that was free. Yes, everything was free. All our services were free. Wow. Well, now your child's hearing loss is she would have to hear before all the cochlear implants, she would have to hear a lawnmower that is that yes, the, the way I describe it, I use what's called a speech banana. Um, when she was born, she was hearing at 95 decibels. Um, really, the sound would have to be as loud as a lawnmower in order for her to hear. When she got her hearing aids at four months, we were able to do some tests in the sound booth. And that brought her hearing up to about 75 to 80 decibels, which is about as loud as a dog barking. However, with the speech banana, what that was telling us was that she wasn't going to be able to learn the speech sounds. Um, Now with the cochlear implant, she hears at about 25, 30 decibels, which accesses all the speech sounds. Wow. Now what's so amazing is she is now five and tell them the good news. She will be going into mainstream kindergarten in a local neighborhood school. Um, I owe everything to the early intervention and the cochlear implants. Now when parents are hesitant or I guess a lot of parents might be nervous to call you. Do you experience that, and how do you help them through the process? Um, a little bit of both. My position's pretty unique because as a family resource specialist, I'm there to help the families as they go through the journey, whether it's just to talk or resources out in the community. Um, I've found a lot of times that some caregivers just like to be able to share their stories. It means a lot when somebody's just able to stop and listen. So, Alex, can you explain how the referral process works? What does that entail for a parent? 
Families can get in touch in numerous ways with early steps. Um, a lot of times our referrals come from the caregivers themselves. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm here is just to be able to let their, our caregivers know about the program. Referrals come from pediatricians. Um, it also comes from our community agencies. I'm in constant communication with our agencies out in the community, letting them know about us. And these agencies can always refer to us. And what ends up happening is we'll, once we get your information, we'll give you a call. Our program is completely voluntary. It's not something that you have to do. Nobody is forcing you to do it. So when we give you a call, it's because there's a concern. Um, once we give you a call, that actually starts a five-day process where a service coordinator will get your information and will give you a contact call. We will then go ahead and go to your home and do an intake. We'll use the BDI, that developmental inventory, as a screener to see what is the child's needs and what your concerns are. If the child qualifies through the screener, then we'll go ahead and set up for a full evaluation. An evaluation will take about an hour and a half to two hours, and that's where we'll go over each of these the developmental domains with you. And then from there, if your child qualifies, we'll go ahead and start therapies that could range either from physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, or an early interventionist or an ITDS, which is an infant toddler developmental specialist. Um, it really all depends upon the needs of your family and the needs of your child. Yes. Now, as far as the approach or the overview for families, how would you describe that for them? We Our program is very unique because we use the natural environment model. We are not a clinical-based model. We go into the child's home, to the child's daycare, and we don't come in with this magic bag of toys. What we do is we teach the caregiver to use the daily routines in the house and the things that are in the house, um, different things like washing hands or cooking or cleaning, um, using just everyday items in the household to boost your child's development. Oh, that is so good. Because of my girls, Marie and Christina, their anxiety is so high. And especially Christina, when if if she hits a rough patch where she's having seizures and things, I always have to weigh therapy with the anxiety attached to it. And for us, one of the big anxiety was just driving there and driving back and then being in a new environment and all the things that go along with it. So the fact that you actually come into the home or into an environment where the child is already familiar with, that is so wonderful. And then we're also able to teach the caregivers those different techniques, which actually helps the caregivers become at ease with what they can do once we leave. Because sometimes we're only in there for an hour a month. Sometimes we're in there an hour for a week. And so it really puts the caregiver at ease on different things that they can do to help their own child. Yes. And you know what's so amazing about therapies is lots of times once you're shown a therapy, a lot of this, I'd like to say a lot of it's not rocket science. And yes, a great deal of research and study has gone into it, but it makes sense on an intuitive level. The therapies make sense. So if someone can tell me, do this or like with your child, cover your mouth. And that will help your child learn to find the sound. Who would have thought of that? Definitely. Um, I learned so many techniques that just became a way of life. And it still is a way of life for me. Just different ways to talk and um, different things like turning off the TV, all the background noise that goes into it. As you're talking to a child with a hearing loss, I never would have known until we had these therapies put in place of how to able to help my child. Yes. And that is so wonderful that that is provided to the family. Now, can a, can a parent or a grandparent refer their own child 
A grandparent uh, can refer. We do need a legal guardian, though, to start the process. Um, but we do have several grandparents that call in that are concerned because they're the ones that are taking care of the grandchild during the day. Um, we do need the legal guardian's permission, though. Um, we Confidentiality is a huge part of our program that we take very seriously in our program. Um, but once we get that the, the signature, um, we're fine to go ahead and start the process. And then what we do is we put in place an IFSP, which is an individualized family service plan. And the grandparents, of course, can be part of that. It is a team approach with the caregivers and the grandparents and whoever's involved in that child's life being able to talk about their different concerns and what they'd like to see the child excel at and the different developmental domains that they would like to see happen. Yes. Now, as the child continues, I guess the child graduates at three. It doesn't have to be at three, though. Um, With the IFSP, the Individualized Family Service Plan, you set up goals. Um, Our program goes until 36 months, but sometimes the child might excel at those goals and graduate before that child's three, which is absolutely wonderful. Wow. Well, why don't we do this? We're going to take a break. Hi, I'm Julie Ames, the Special Needs Family Hour host at AM 860, The Answer. And on the other side, we will discuss the graduation process if at by three you haven't reached your goals yet. Missed any part of today's show? You can obtain the podcast on our website, specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour. I am Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. I am here with Alex De Molina, a family resource specialist for the USF Bay Area Early Steps. And Alex, I was wondering if you could take us through the process. If I have an infant child who starts with early steps, can you take me through that whole process until they actually graduate? Sure. What ends up happening is we'll first begin with the IFSP, the Individualized Family Service Plan. We'll put therapy services into place. And then at six months, uh, your service coordinator, who's that primary contact, will get together with you as the caregiver and talk to you about how everything's going and your goals. That's called a periodic review. After that, at a year from the time you came in with the initial IFSP, we'll get together for an IFSP team meeting. That will also be with your providers. You'll have a primary service provider that has been doing the therapies, your service coordinator, and of course you will come in and sit down as a team to talk about your child's goals. So that's the normal routine of what ends up happening throughout the time with early steps. At about 30 to 33 months, we'll start talking to you about transition and we'll set up a transition conference. We have a great collaboration with our local Hillsborough County public school system, and we work hand-in-hand with a program called Child Find. Yes, we had Dr. Emily Tomino of Child Find on this past week. We work hand-in-hand with them because what ends up happening is if the child needs services after early steps, um, Child Find comes into place to create a smooth transition after the third birthday. 
Um, so closer to about, yeah, about 33 months, there'll be an exit evaluation. Same using the BDI, the Patel Developmental Inventory, and they'll do an evaluation. If the child qualifies through that evaluation, then we'll set up services through the school system so that as soon as the day after the child turns three, they'll be able to start school. Um, Depending upon what the child's needs are, are is depending upon where the placement will be. Okay. So, for instance, my daughter was with Childfine, and she got her speech through Childfine. And, of course, we were up in Virginia with Childfine. We moved here. And the local school was able to take that individual education plan, and we were able to get speech at the school. What ends up happening, actually, is um, with our program, it's actually funded at a federal level from IDEA, the Individuals with Disability Education Act. The funding comes from Part C, and that's actually for the early intervention. There's um, different early intervention in different states. Um, States have it in one form or another. It does look differently, but it all still has the same premise in each state. And it's called Part C, and that's with the IFSP. Once a child turns three, then it goes into Part B under IDEA. And that's where the IEP comes into play, which is an individualized education plan. Child Find in the Hillsborough County School System will get together with the family to put in an IEP. An IEP differs a little bit from an IFSP. With us, we're focusing around the family, what the family's needs are, what the family's goals are for the development of the child. When you start to switch to an IEP, it focuses on the individualized education of the child. So the shift is a little bit different. Okay. And, And I know all this sounds really complicated, but the easy way for me to think about it is, is that you have the plan for the family, and then the child is old enough to go to school, so you just have to have goals related to their education. And that's where the IEP team comes into play, and the caregivers are definitely part of the IEP team. And that's really at the school system level where that comes into play. Um, for us, we are there, as, and especially for me as an uh, FRS, we're there for support. We're able to guide them through our program to make the transition as smooth as possible. Um, there again, not all of our children need school after they turn three. Um, a lot of times they've met their developmental goals and they're really ready, you know, to kind of go out and away from the program that we have or that the school has to offer. And then at that point in time, we offer them different resources out in the community to keep on teaching the caregivers. Awesome. Well, at the next show, I'm going to have someone from Fiddlers, the group that is responsible for the individual education plan. So we'll be discussing that on the following show. Wonderful. Now, can you explain to the audience how to contact you and your website? There's several different ways. Um, for We actually, Early Steps, USF Bay or Early Steps actually services Hillsborough and Polk County. Um, because of the different counties, it looks a little bit different in each county. We do have a 1-800 number, and then our main line is 813-974-0602. We have a pretty active Facebook site, which is USF Bay Area Early Steps Program. You can always go onto the Facebook site, and it has all our information. We do have a website for our particular program if you're looking for 
it it at the local level, then we also have the state-run Early Steps program where if you're in different areas of the state, you can find out where your actual Early Steps program would be according to where you live. Great. Now, on the special needs family site, we have under resources, we have a link under development for the Early Steps program. So they can also just go there and get right to your website. Right. And all the information that I've talked to is on that Early Steps State website. Um, It gives information about the natural environment, the coaching, the caregivers, and it also has a number that they can call to find their local Early Steps. Wonderful. This is Julie Ames with the Special Needs Family Hour here on AM860. We'll be right back. To find out more or to contact Julie Ames, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now... Here's Julie Ames. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour. I am Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. And I'm here with Alex De Molino, a family resource specialist for USF Bay Area Early Steps. And she's going to tell us her journey with her daughter. Uh, Kirsty was actually born. Um, she was born a little bit early, so she had a staycation in the NICU. And... It is mandated um, state level. Most states do have a newborn hearing screening. And so when she was getting too ready to leave the NICU, they administered the newborn hearing screening. And she got a refer three times. Um, We were told to follow up with our pediatrician. And at that point in time, you know, we had no clue what this was about, what it actually meant. And... After following up with the pediatrician, we got a referral to have an ABR, which is an auditory brainstem response. Um, That is actually the test that gives the diagnosis of the hearing loss. And that was actually administered at four weeks. Um, I have the exact date in my mind. It will always be in my mind. And what ended up happening is because of the newborn hearing screening, Kirsta got an automatic referral into the Early Steps program. Um, I was in a little bit of state of denial at first, but I also knew the reality of what was going on. So I went full force into finding out the different communication options. Uh, We chose listening and spoken language, and we decided to go and pursue cochlear implants. So my first year was actually spent figuring out how to obtain cochlear implants, Um, We had Medicaid through Social Security, and at their level, they would only approve one cochlear implant, and that was when she was at one years old. So that first year, we were set up with getting audiologists, getting testing, finding out what she was hearing with the hearing aids. And then at about four months, um, I had already been approached from early steps, but I could only really deal with one thing at a time. Right. And um, at about like four months, um, I finally got all my ducks in a row. I finally got to the point where, okay, I know I need this therapy. I know I need some help. So we actually started her first IFSP in June of the year that she was born. 
and she was about four or five months. And that led to all of these different techniques, all this different type of help. It was when I look back at all the information that I gained from that year, it was just a complete whirlwind. Um, But she ended up getting her first cochlear implant when she was 16 months. Um, At that point in time, I wasn't too sure of the choice and the communication option. Um, I knew definitely, you know, the listening and spoken language was it. And after getting that cochlear implant, she started talking within a month of having her cochlear implant. Wow. Um, It truly is an amazing technology, and she has just excelled with it tremendously. Um, So in the process there, we were doing auditory verbal therapy once a week, and that helped tremendously guide me to do these therapies, to do Mm -hmm. these different techniques, Um, and actually... I had three different service providers at the time, and all three of them became very good friends and became part of our family. Wow. Uh, her audiologist um, also became part of our family. Um, she does see an audiologist on a regular basis, like once every four months or so. Right. Um, in the meantime, we weren't too sure how we were actually going to get the second cochlear implant um, because her loss was so severe, her hearing loss was so severe she wasn't getting much gain with the hearing aid. Correct. So we decided to pursue the second cochlear implant, and with the help of an organization called Disability Rights Florida, we were able to collaborate with ACA, which is Agency for Healthcare Administration, and Medicaid to fund the second cochlear implant. So when Kirsten was three years, three months, she got her second cochlear implant. Wow. I bet you can see a big difference, or how long did it take? One of the biggest differences, um, there has been research known as to the binaural advantages that you hear with two ears. One of the biggest things was localization. Um, I've got this one vivid memory of when we were walking up to school, she heard a fire engine. She heard it, she stopped and listened, and she said, I hear a fire engine. Wow. And I said, yes, you do. Do you know where it's coming? And she pointed at the school. And that was a really good hint to me of like, there's something that needs, there's more, there's more that needs to get done. And now one of the biggest things with the binaural advantage, she can localize sound. She knows where a sound is coming from. And that's something that we take for granted hearing with our ears. Um, But now being able to listen with two ears and hear it, she's able to find out where the sound is actually coming from. Wow. Now, along the way, I guess you had lots of help, but I would imagine that just the whole, I I know realizing that my children had challenges was very difficult, and you immediately go into that, um, that mode of trying to find help. But I would think in your situation, because it's hearing, that that would be extremely difficult because there are so many interventions that yes you research will show that if you start them early it makes a difference but at the same time I've always had to weigh that against the anxiety that my kids experience but with hearing the earlier the better Um, there's so much research out there that 
pinpoints to early intervention. There's a wonderful organization called AG Bell, which has helped our family um, with different types of resources. I've utilized them as much as possible. Um, I spent many an insomniac nights looking, you know, going on Google, Googling hearing laws, different communications options, um, because that's another thing, too. Not every communication option is the best fit for each child. Right. This was something that was specific to our family that worked out for our family. And I, as I'm helping other families, I have to respect the family's choice on to which communication option. And yes. our providers did a wonderful job at that and really respected our choice for listening and spoken language. Yes. And I'm sure that makes you very sensitive, whatever the child's disability is, when you're dealing with a family. Very much so. You always want to sit down and listen to the family about what they're looking for, what they want uh, you know, for their child, what the future holds for their child, and to be able to respect their decisions in it. And um, as we were going through the process with getting the cochlear implants, we had tremendous support from early steps, from our providers. Um, when we sat down the IFSP, I was talking about how I wanted to get her around more hearing peers. And that's how we developed into this developmental play group. Um, you really got to sit down and really respect the family's choice. And then um, actually once Kirsta got to be about 33 months, we had the transition conference and talk about school. And we're very lucky here in Hillsborough County because we have a deaf and hearty hearing program with yes. our school system. So... Even with that, that's a choice because we were choosing to do oral communication. Working with Child Find, we were able to find the best fit possible for our daughter. Yes, and we are fortunate because I remember you told me you had a friend that was in accounting where they didn't have that, and so her child has no resources. Yeah, and unfortunately with that, the cochlear implants did what they were supposed to do. Early intervention helped out, and she's at the hearing age. And because they didn't have this one particular program, she wasn't able to follow in the footsteps of having school yes. at three and four years old. So we're very lucky in this county to have that program. Yes, Alex, I was noticing on one of the back of the brochures here, it talks about family involvement funds. What does that um, comprise of? We've got a really um, strong program where we can offer our families uh, financial resources to help them attend a workshop or a specific play group. Um, some of our family involvement funds has gone to a hot docs program that assists with behavior. And currently we're offering family involvement funds to assist families to get to the 17th Annual Family Cafe in Orlando. Um, you can either contact me as a Hillsborough County Family Resource Specialist or the Polk County Family Resource Specialist, Evelyn. Right. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the Family Cafe for our audience? Of course. Um, the Family Cafe is actually a wonderful opportunity to network with other families, with people who have varying abilities or self-advocates. Um, the registration is free for those families and for those self-advocates. And it's held every year in Orlando. It's June 5th through the 7th. 
And they have this big exhibition hall with different types of vendors, all different types of information for varying abilities. They have breakout sessions and actually early steps. The family resource specialist throughout the state puts on early steps, early wishes, which is a play group that's on Friday. And that's been going on every year for several years now. And that's for Mm -hmm. our early steps families to get together and be able to just kind of bond and talk to one another. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Wow. Well, thank you for being here and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Next week, um, we're going to have Denise Provenzano with Florida Diagnostic and Learning Resource Systems discussing the individual education plan. If you want to contact us, I can be reached at julie at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. And don't forget to like us on our Special Needs Family Hour Facebook page. I am Julie Ames, the host of the Special Needs Family Hour here on AM860, The Answer. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Special Needs Family Hour. If you've missed any part of today's program, you can get the podcast of this and every show at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. While there, please take advantage of the resources we made available. And if you're so inclined, please support the advertisers that support this program more than anything. Just know that you are not alone. And we invite you to join us next Sunday at 1 for the Special Needs Family Hour, only on AM 860. The Answer.